There is this widespread fear that inflation is going to make a roaring comeback any second now. That, especially now with the Federal Reserve talking about rate cuts taking its foot off the brakes, suddenly there's risk that consumer prices are going to be reignited for just reasons. Because we're all taught that the Fed is the most important variable here, and if the Fed starts cutting rates, that stimulus too soon before the job is done, therefore it must lead to more consumer prices. But that's not inflation, nor is it how inflation works. But it keeps coming back, this, fear, this theory, this view, every time a CPI number tends to bounce and rebound. We've been through this twice already. Remember back in February, somebody coined the term transitory disinflation. Clever term, you gotta give them credit for that. But the idea was that the disinflation that showed up at the end of last year, leading to a whole bunch of other problems, but essentially that wasn't going to last. Instead, the disinflation from late 2022 into early 2023, that would prove to be transitory rather than the inflation, the big stuff that everybody was talking about and feeling in 2022, earlier to that point. And it was given new life, not just with CPIs that rebounded earlier last year, but also economic data that made it seem like the U.S. economy was heading into a restarted position where it was going to accelerate off into some supernova of consumer prices. But of course, that didn't last very long. Instead, we got a banking crisis in March and April that brought everyone back down. Transitory disinflation transitorily disappeared, as did consumer prices. But then it all came back, summertime, where we're talking about renewed, restarted, reignited inflation pressures all over again, this time because of our good friends in Saudi Arabia, who are restricting oil supply, surging oil prices, which go right into CPI numbers, as they did you look at the U.S. CPI, look at European CPIs, even some of those around the rest of the world, they accelerated in the middle part of the year. And the, the term transitory disinflation came roaring back. But we knew it was only oil prices and we knew that it wasn't going to land. The transitory oil price spike included. And we knew that because interest rates. Now, I know what you think. Interest rates during that period in the summertime, especially August, September, and October, those were rising. The yield curve was nearly uninverted by the time we got to October. So wasn't the bond market getting into the same position as transitory disinflation? And the answer is no, because during September, yields rise. They rise every September, actually August, September, and October, regardless of circumstances in any calendar year. So if interest rates rise because it's just that part of the calendar, that's not something you need to take very seriously. Yes, you take it seriously as in, as in terms of investment, being aware of what's going on in rates, but it doesn't send the same fundamental signal as, say, afterward or before then. Essentially, had the yield curve continued to do what it was doing during the September period, say in October, November, December, and now January, had interest rates continued to rise, had the yield curve uninverted and steepened from there, that would have been the signal. Had it done so outside of the September effect, that would have been a very compelling, if not convincing signal, that transitory disinflation was indeed the big thing that we needed to worry about. But instead, what happened? As soon as the September period was over in the middle of October, 
Rates went right back down again, curves massively inverted. Now the Federal Reserve is talking about rate cuts. And that's a big part of the problem that we have when we talk about consumer prices and real inflation, because people have interest rates all backwards. As I showed in just a, a recent video, interest rates rise during inflationary periods, including market rates in the short run, short-term rates. They rise during an inflationary period like the great inflation of the 1970s. They don't go down. Down is, as Newt Wicksell pointed out more than a century ago, and Milton Friedman proved, and Ben Bernanke agreed, lower rates are a sign of demand for safety and liquidity, which is the opposite from an inflationary period. So unless and until the yield curve uninverts and steepens, we are not going to be in a transitory disinflation period. It's still going to be the same supply shock case. In addition to getting interest rates completely backwards, economics and central bankers, the financial media, everyone, the, the quote unquote mainstream, they essentially tell the inflation story wrong too. Because what do central bankers tell you when they talk about inflation risk? They say it's a combination of expectations and the Phillips curve. There is no evidence that the Phillips curve bears any resemblance to consumer prices. Just look at the last couple years. The Phillips curve basically says when the labor market is tight, that means that businesses have to compete for workers. And if they're competing for workers, they're paying a higher price to get workers. And the more scarce workers become, the more the competition, the higher the prices. And of course, as we know, businesses, if they're paying higher prices for workers and wages, they're going to pass those prices, those costs along to their, their customers, consumers in the form of higher consumer prices. That must be inflationary. Except that's not how it works either. The Phillips curve, that, throw that one out the window. We can see that over the last year and a half. The unemployment rate has continued to fall and stay, it has stayed near a 50-year low, yet consumer price rates continue to decline, defying the Phillips curve predictions. And expectations theory, that's just something economists have to depend upon in their theoretical models because they don't model the real stuff, which is money. And that's how we know, as well as interest rates, interest rates are all about money and monetary risks, but that's how we know that we're not heading into a great inflation, that we're still sitting in this supply shock period. Because the monetary system, just looking at nothing more than credit statistics, shows you big jump in credit in 2020 when the government got into the CARES Act and pandemic fighting and all that, which provoked the supply shock. And now banks have gone right back into their 2010s deflationary, depressionary mode and have been since late 2021, this entire period, apart from the oil price spike in March and April and in May of 2022, banks have been heading in the other direction. Money has been heading in the deflationary direction. Money has been heading in the direction that yield curves, which inverted all the way back in 2021 and 2022, have been warning us about the entire time. That verdict hasn't changed even if we don't know exactly how long this supply shock period plays out. And that's the other big problem. There's a number of them, if you haven't guessed. That's the other big problem with this inflation fear, that inflation is going to come roaring back because 
gosh darn it, you've been saying transitory for several years now, and how can transitory add up to several years? But that's where the supply shock cases are so incredibly useful. We do have supply shock instances in US history using the same CPI that we're gonna talk about today. There was a supply shock case that showed up in the, the middle 1940s, middle to second half of the 1940s, 1946, 47, 48, into 49. And then another one, 1950, 51, and 52. There was two of them very close together. There's actually another one in 43 during World War II, but we'll set that one aside, even though it's exactly the same of what we're going to talk about here. But essentially, this, these supply shock cases, when you look at them, what you see is they are, number one, transitory, and number two, transitory takes several years to play out. Rates, uh, consumer prices don't just go way up and then come right back down. They tend to go way up and then linger. They stay high and they slowly, slowly decelerate over a quite a period of time, a transitory but prolonged period of time, which only amplifies the pain Therefore, the dissatisfaction with the entire idea of transitory. It's understandable if still coming from a place of economic ignorance. Starting with the 1946 to 48 supply shock case, that was not money printing either. Essentially, you had World War II, which destroyed much of Europe and Asia, and therefore you didn't have a whole lot of supply flexibility especially since a lot of American supply, industrial supply, good supply, was focused on rebuilding those parts of the world, suddenly Americans who had been saving up their incomes during the World War II period, in fact, they've been saving up their incomes for over a decade by then, going back to the Great Depression, so they had saved and saved and saved, and then the war's over, the economy starts to come back, incomes start to go up, and suddenly Americans say, for the first time in recent memory, we're going to start spending. So the savings rate absolutely dropped. It was up around 25% during 1945. It falls all the way under 4% by 1947, which was when the consumer price index reached its peak. American savings flooded. Americans started to spend, but American supply, industry, manufacturing wasn't able to meet that burst of demand. Sound familiar? Suddenly prices had to adjust because simple economics. When demand goes much farther and faster than can be met by supply, suppliers have the ability to raise their prices. It becomes an auction, competition for goods in this case. And the, the price increases can be met for a period of time because in this case, savings were being used to finance that demand, just like in 2021 and 2022, except it wasn't savings, it was government savings. The supply shock case and the supply shop, the supply shock uh, comparisons are really, really strong here. So even though the CPI got up to around 20%, we got nothing on 1940s, we got a 20%, nearly 20% rate of CPI in the middle of 1947, you wouldn't see, you wouldn't see a CPI rate under 5% for 30 months from the beginning. So that's 1948 into 1949. You wouldn't find a negative number, negative year-over-year -year change in the CPI for three solid years. So it took three years for the supply shock and consumer prices to go all the way up and then a much longer period of time to come back slowly down. Transitory takes quite a long time, in this case, three years. 
1950-51, it wasn't the same type of supply shock, but it was still a supply shock. An increase in demand, a sudden and unexpected increase in demand that was provoked by America's entry into the Korean conflict. Essentially, Americans, having just lived through World War II, realized that the government was about to ration a whole bunch of stuff that they were going to then rechannel for the, the war effort. So in advance of that rationing, as soon as the Korean conflict was announced, as soon as it looked like it was going to be, as soon as it looked like the U.S. was going to join the effort, Americans went on a shopping spree, an epic shopping spree, to buy as much stuff as they could while they still could. And in that short period of time, again, producers just can't respond, especially as they're already starting to turn their attention toward war produce. So prices once again surged because demand out of balance with supply. No money printing here. And it took, again, 30 months before we saw uh, consumer price rates, annual rates get back to where they had been, what would be considered normal, which back then was under 1%. I mean, it took 20 months just to get back under 3%. So these are prolonged periods of time. And even though they are transitory, along the way you would hear... Um, if social media was around back then, you would hear everybody talking about transitory disinflation every time a monthly number didn't fall in exactly the same downward trend as it had been previously. Even though during both of those periods, there was absolutely no risk of inflation, let alone coming back, there was no inflation risk because it wasn't inflation. And again, the supply shock case, the, the parallels between what we're going through in the 2020s versus the 1940s and early 1950s are, they're numerous and they're strong and they are compelling. Imbalance between demand and supply, great increase in prices, that doesn't just go away. And so long as there isn't the background for actual legitimate inflation to go along with it, which is money printing, not from the Federal Reserve, but from the banking system, then we the supply shock will continue to play itself uh, play itself out over a prolonged period, and that's exactly what we see, even with these monthly quirks along the way. After two months of very obvious disinflation in October and November, the December CPI comes out and wasn't really all that much different. But the rates were higher, so transitory disinflation is has made its third comeback in just a year. This, the month-over-month -month rate for the CPI was 0.3%, which was faster than 0.1% and 0.04% in the two pre preceding months. But that's still less than it had been in the months before those three months. Go back to August and September, where you see the monthly rate of 0.4% and 0.63%. So December is half of August, it doesn't represent a continue, some kind of major change in the underlying conditions. The year-over-year -year rate increased from 3.12% in November to 3.3% in December. But again, we've seen this happen before, just a few months ago. When oil prices surged because of Saudi Arabia, the CPI went from 3.1% year-over-year in June to 3.3% in July, 3.7% in August. And everybody said, look, oil prices are inflation. So here it comes again, except oil prices are not inflation. And the CPI went back down afterwards. So again, these things, we go back and forth. Nothing ever goes in a straight line. Even supply shock cases have variability. 
The core CPI for the month of December, that was around 0.3% for basically the, what, fourth or fifth month in a row here. It's kind of stuck at that level. And the reason is because shelter prices, even the BLS in its press release for the December CPI singled out shelter prices in the, the first sentence of the second paragraph. This is what the BLS wrote. The index for shelter continued to rise in December, contributing over half of the monthly all items increase. Half of the increase was shelter, not the annual increase, but the monthly increase was shelter. You take away this imputation, suddenly the 0.3% is 0.15%, just like it had been in the preceding two months. Outside of this fake artificial accounting construction that fills out a, a huge chunk of the CPI bucket, disinflation is everywhere. And the BLS continued. The shelter index increased half a percent in December after rising 0.4% the previous month and was the largest factor in the monthly increase in the index for all items, less food and energy, the core rate. Shelter prices are continuing to grow at a strong rate. I hate to use that word strong, but they continue to rise for reasons that have nothing to do with inflation, economy, or anything tangible. So consumer prices overall are actually more disinflationary in December than they otherwise seem. And they do seem disinflationary. Take the all items index, excluding food, energy, and shelter, and you get 0.19% month over month, which was the fourth straight month at that level. Since May, the all items, less those, those particular parts of the bucket, they're rising at a 1.3% annual rate. Maybe more important than anything, interest rates, the market reaction to the CPI, the market reaction to everything that's going on. As I've said recently, we expect interest rates to rise a little bit during this pause period or this retracement period after what was a historic run in bonds uh, over the last 47 trading days up until the end of December. But essentially, we expect interest rates to back up. And you would think that given the hot CPI today, rates would be going up more than they are. But the bond market really didn't react much to it at all. Uh, interestingly enough, the two-year treasury, which had a, a knee-jerk reaction like most of the market always does, went from 438, 433 to 438, but now it's 432 and there's a bias lower, not just at the two-year, but among a lot of short-term interest rates or short-term parts of the curve. So that's the more important part of the reaction in the marketplace. The 10-year went from around 399 to 407, which wasn't a huge move. Now back down to around 403, 404, where it's been for the last couple of days. So not a whole lot of reaction to the CPI, certainly not something that would get your attention and say, oh boy, we have to worry about great inflation too all of a sudden. Again, the problem with transitory disinflation is it gets inflation completely backwards and completely wrong. The markets have been telling us all along this was a supply shock case. And we know from history, conclusively from history, supply shock cases, what they look like and how long they can take. So it should not be a surprise that we're continuing to get signals that align with the supply shock case, including the marketplace, which is telling us that inflation risk just doesn't actually exist. Rates continue to want to go lower. And let's face it, they aren't all that high to begin with, not in any historical context. So being low to begin with and wanting to go even lower is a very, very, very strong signal that there is no inflation risk. We have variability from various parts of the complex global economy, but that's all it is. 
Nothing goes in a straight line. It isn't the sudden magical re-rise and resurrection of inflation. It's simply the resurrection of the term transitory disinflation for the third time. What does actual inflation look like in the bond market? How did that play out? How has it been playing out in our current period? That's the video I've got linked below. The 1970s, what are interest rates actually doing? As always, I thank you very much for joining me. Huge thank you, Yordal University members and subscribers. Until next time, take care.